You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He's sitting there, he looks at Eddie and Eddie's going up and down the neck and Les is there like not making any like, oh my God, you're, you're just looking at him like this, shaking his head. So Eddie goes up and I think he finished with eruption, like going up and down. And um, Eddie's like, what do you think? He goes, eh, like that. Eh. So <laughs> Eddie looks at Les and he goes, do you still got it, Les? He goes, I think so. So hands him the guitar. Les puts on the Wolfgang guitar, Eddie Van Halen Wolfgang guitar. He looks at Eddie, goes, turn that amp up. Eddie goes, whoa. So all of a sudden, Les goes, you ready? And Eddie and his guitar tech, Matt Brock at the time, all of us, Eddie goes, we're ready. So Les takes the high E, turns it up, and just bends the string. Now the sustain is just ringing, one note. And it's ringing for like 10, 15 seconds. And all of a sudden, Eddie grabs the neck of the guitar and goes, I get it, Les. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of 2020. I'm Benny Goodman. I'm here with my friends and cohorts in crime, Siobhan Cronin and Corey Peza. But this week, we talk about all things Les Paul and dare I say, one of the greatest Eddie Van Halen stories ever. If that's not enough reason to listen to the rest of this episode, then... I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't really even need much more than that. But <laughs> yeah, so here we go. Let's let's just let just let it Jimmy be. Jimmy Wysocki, the mayor of Mawa, New Jersey, and all things Les Paul, the gatekeeper. Part two right now. Like and subscribe two zero two zero dash D dot. Van Halen. Hello, welcome back to another episode of 2020. Here, as always, it's me, Benny, and Siobhan, and we're super pumped to welcome back Jim Wysocki, the mayor, the firefighter, and the keeper of Les Paul's legacy. Uh, if you didn't check out part one yet, go back. It's uh, it's such a crazy story and uh, just a really impressive show of friendship that uh, that Jim has taken on, taken on this uh, mission to share Les's legacy with the world. Um, and I know that at the end of the last episode, Ben was foaming at the mouth, waiting to jump in. So we'll, let me let me toss it back over to Penn here to, to get us kicked off in part two. So the, the thing I was trying to get at is that when we left off, if you haven't listened to last week, get on it. Basically, Jimmy, the nicest guy in the world, the mayor, gets pulled over by a cop. What does he do? He doesn't get arrested. He doesn't get a ticket. He spends an hour and a half on the side of the road. And then the guy makes this astute observation why are you bringing around the Ark of the Covenant in your truck, bro? Because the reason I yell at Jimmy all the time to stop doing what he's doing is I equate it to the the Egypt Museum in Cairo or whatever it is, the Cairo Museum, because from 2000 to like, or from like 1990 to like 2003 or four before they redid it, 
they did more damage to these antiquities of like you know from ancient Egypt uh, King like King Tut's body for example there's been more damage done to it in the last hundred years than in the last three thousand years mm-hmm. true story so the problem is is that Jimmy has all these in- incredible like literally incredible antiquities and it's wonderful that he wants to do this but some of this stuff is so important to history and delicate uh, you know for example I was holding these pickups you know at at his, these prototype pickups that were on the table um, when I first met him. And these are literally the prototypes that Les Paul used with, with Mag. Like, they're the dawn of time for pickups. I shouldn't be touching them. Nevertheless, snotty nose children. And <laughs> I, I love the fact that when I met Jimmy, he has such a burden, like, I need to do this for less. I need to. Like, I have to. I'm like, why are you driving with your buddy bringing the first tape machine? He's like, I can only stay on the East Coast. That's because he brings Les Paul, the inventor of sound on sound recordings, tape machine with them to little hotel places with them in the back of a truck. It just like lifts it off. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at all this, this crazy stuff. And look, it's amazing what he wants to do because he literally, he, he's a literalist. Les said to him, I love the idea of putting stuff in everyone's hands. But now he's been gone for a little while. And this stuff is incredibly valuable, but a lot of it hasn't been demystified. There's thousands of notes. And like, I remember Jim Foster was with me. And at the end of this guitar show, he just gives away one of his prototype boxes that's filled with all these capacitors. And no one knows what it does. And just Jimmy gives it away. And he goes, that could be part of the Rosetta Stone that cracks it. But, you know, hey, just give it to that random guy. And I don't mean to be rude, but I'm like that. He's he's totally right. Like he could have just given away the part of the tape machine that he took out in 1957, so that no one Jeez. could figure it out. And like here's cigar. the one piece they don't. This, this happens every yeah. time. All right. <laughs> the point is that I love the fact that he took it so literal, but you know he couldn't sell anything because you know he's promising less of you do this. He's trying to go around the country, and it's so admirable. But at this point. A lot of this stuff needs to be in a museum, needs to be in a private collection. And one of the number one reasons we're doing this documentary is to document everything. So it doesn't have to just live in Jimmy's head and in his garage that we can get all these stories out, that we can get less um, all of his stories out, that we can share all of his um, different inventions, his notes, make sense of some of this stuff, because everything. Everything in Jimmy's basement in his garage is like new territory. I mean, literally, he calls me up one day. The way we got this whole thing funded was he, Benny, I found another guitar in my closet. Can you tell us what that guitar was, Jimmy? Uh, years ago, um, Les learned to play the guitar. Obviously, he had a Sears Troubadour when he was 11 years old. It was a beat up guitar. It was brand new, but it was a Sears model. It wasn't top of the line. And he could play rhythm guitar really good and he'd play the local you know uh, Beekman's uh, barbecue out in Waukesha but um, one night uh, his friend they had this gimmick <laughs> where if you didn't have doorbells back then and you're talking in the 20s um, so what they did is they took a string and they put it in all the friends bedrooms tied cans to it so when it neighbors the kids saw something that was interesting at night he'd pull it and it'd wake the kid up and they'd go down but les did it one step better he tied it to his foot because he didn't want to miss the ringing of the cans so one night his friend pulls it his toe almost yanks off he goes come on we got to get down to um uh uh 
the hell's the name of the bar? I forgot the name of the bar in Waukesha. He goes, this guy named Sonny Joe Wolverton's playing below the fifth fret. Now, back in the day, no one ever played below the fifth fret lead. It was all rhythm. So they go, they sneak in the bedroom or sneak in the bathroom window at the bar, and they're sitting in the back and they're watching this guy. So every week he played, they'd sneak in and Les had a flashlight and a note, and he would write down where uh, Sonny Joe would put his fingers on the fretboard. Well, he couldn't play lead with his uh, um, troubadour because it wasn't the right guitar for it. So he went out and got a, a Martin guitar. And um, what he did is he he wrote on a fretboard of the Martin guitar the number of the frets from one to whatever it was. I forget what it was, 18, whatever the hell it is. And he wrote in red little pen. So when he would go home, he'd take his notes and he'd be able to know where Sonny Joe put his fingers. And after a while, Sonny Joe saw him in the in the um, in the roadhouse bar. So what do you do every week? You come in here. I see what he goes. I play the guitar and I'm learning from how you where you put your fingers. I wrote on a fretboard. And later in the story, Les ended up joining Sonny Joe's band at the age of 16. Um, he went on the road. Um, but what happened was years and years before that, uh, when I uh, right after I met him, I like I said, he gave me a lot of guitars and uh, he gave me this guitar. And I, I never really put two and two together. I, you know, it's like everything. I throw it in a garage, in a, in a closet. So about eight months ago, I'm cleaning out a closet in the basement where I got a bunch of guitar cases. I open it, the case. I said, "Listen, we gotta we gotta open this door, clean out this crap." So my daughter says, "What are we doing with this guitar case?" And it was an old cardboard type case. I said, "Throw it right in the garbage because it's all filled with mildew." And uh, she goes, "I think something's in it." So she opens it, and there's his Martin guitar. And I remember it's got the numbers on. It. So I got it and I called Martin down in Nazareth, PA. I said, listen, I got this guitar. I was wondering if you could take a look at it. It needs some work. Uh, so we went to Martin and I show the guy there and the guy's like shaking. I'm telling him the story. And I said, you know, Les was a Gibson guy, but back in the day, this was a guitar he had. He learned to play lead guitar. That's how he learned. So actually it's at the Martin factory. It's being fixed. It's finished. I think they put it in their museum for a couple of weeks next to a guitar signed by Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And um, it's it's a guitar that we have. And Benny will tell you, it's actually one of those ones that you I can't take care of it. Um, it's in a good home and it funded so far what we're doing. Yeah. So let's be clear what actually happened. So, Jimmy, always every week he sends like I think the week before he said he opened up one of his bins and there was like um there was a bunch of rack mount gear with Les's and, and Mary Ford's actual parameters all written. So like, you know, they could be their own sound people. So like, you know, but this is old stuff. He's like, look, Benny, look what I found. And like, meanwhile, I'm like Googling these things. And Eric, again, our friend who knows everything about audio, it's like, oh, those are like those are those are really expensive and nice. He just opens it. And he's surprised, Benny. I found this next week. Benny, I have another surprise. I'm like, dude, this is what is this now? But wait, there's more. I found a guitar. You did? You just found one? Yeah. I was going to throw it away. Of course, Jimmy, you were going to throw the guitar away. Of course you would. He opens it up and he had told me this story. I said, you found that's the guitar you have? He goes, yeah. Do you think it's worth anything? Jimmy, please sit down. That's that's a very, very valuable guitar. Just just as a Martin 0017 from 1927, 28. I'm like, that's a valuable guitar. Nevertheless, with the provenance. But the thing is, 
it's not referenced in any of his books or any of his stories. So I realized very quickly, no one knows about this. And we ended up, um, you know, passing it along to Scott Benson, our buddy um, who's behind all this stuff because he's been helping with the documentary. And I tell him about it and he goes, Benny, do you really think that this thing's real? Like, I mean, do you think that Jimmy's like word enough? Like, do you think he'll write it down for us? I'm like, Scott, when we're done, when we're done with this documentary, no one will question whether Jimmy Wysocki is literally the authority, the best living authority on Les Paul. Like there's a certain point where there is no way to prove it beyond the fact that Jimmy's saying all this stuff. But the irony is, is that when I go to Jimmy's house, I'm convinced that there's stuff in the notes. He has so many notes. There's such an absolutely incredible amount, an awesome amount of stuff that like, I bet you all the little pieces are there, but this is just an example of another week at Jimmy's house. Oh, I'm cleaning out the basement. I just found this Martin guitar that our hero, Les Paul, learned on, which also leads me to the fact that there is a Les Paul Martin, which also leads me to the fact that I think Martin should make a Les Paul Martin. So we're going to go get that guitar and we're going to tell this story for the first time other than on here on our documentary with this guitar. Like no one's even seen this thing. I've never even held it in my hand. It's not in any book. I don't know how you feel about it, Corey, as a guitarist. But when I heard that story, I said, holy cow. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> well, let me ask you, this This brings up another question. I mean, you must obviously, and I've seen it in person because I was there when you were doing um, the second part uh, that no, we that, referenced. No, that one. Not that one. That one's at Oh, Martin. that's a different you one. See, you saw his no, bedroom guitar. No, no, I haven't guitar. seen that guitar, but I, w- but I was going to comment on the amount of stuff. Oh. I've seen just oh, yeah. a small amount of, obviously, the massive amount of things that you've acquired over time. And I'm curious, I mean, there must be a lot of interpretation that you kind of have to do now after his death. Like, there's probably so many things that you don't even have stories about, I would assume, right? And I'm just curious, maybe if you can tell us what that's like. I mean, going through, and you've said already some of this, but... I mean, there's got to be just so much stuff that you don't even know what it is, right? As you come, I remember coming down the stairs, I think the first time with Benny and um, Jimmy, they came down the stairs in the basement and I've got a bunch of his handmade boxes. The first thing, and we we brought Alex Skolnick over. Alex Skolnick comes down the stairs, he's like, oh my God. I, I thought he fell, I mean, but he's just looking at the records and the boxes. He goes, do you know what these are? I'm like, hell no, I don't know what that <laughs> is. Like, it's like this thing, I just, I, I uncovered this, this little, it's got something written on it, Les Paul, I don't know, but it's whatever it is, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's, my, my thing Surprise. Is, yeah, whenever we do our shows, it's, it's funny because I say, you can pick the guitars up, you can plug anything in you want to, but you have to understand if you get electrocuted, you're on your own because I don't know what Les Paul did with it. <laughs> it's a stupid joke, but, you know, it's it's fun just about every show because I find something that somebody will, you know, bring the light out to say what it actually is. And, uh-huh. uh, there's a lot of things that, that are still there that I just go over and just, yeah, put it in the corner for some other time. But Benny's like the guy, yo, dude, you can't, no, 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 that's, that's expensive. I'm 
This well, was not- so Les was was a maniac. He keeps he he had like new old stock of everything. So like if you need a capacitor, if you needed a potentiometer, if you needed any kind of knob or whatever. So he's got like 1950s Gibson knobs, like whole sets, beautiful sets of like old Cluson tuners, PAF humbuckers, just lying around. So it's it's not like I'm saying, hey Jimmy, because that belonged to Les Paul, don't give me the Allen wrench. It's like, dude. That's a potentiometer from a 1955 Les Paul Custom. Someone will pay $600 for that little piece. And he's like, oh, I have a whole box of them. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I will say thank you because I have a Les Paul that sounded kind of meh. And amidst our trips, because Jimmy always sends me home with stuff, which because he knows I'm like a little kid on Christmas morning. He, he loves laughing. It never goes, never goes. I, he, well, Don loves me for that. But that said, like, yeah, I told him I had to call him one time and say, listen, I'm never going to say no. So don't offer me anything that you don't want to give away because I I'm incapable and I, I am literally overwhelmed every time I go in. He goes, Benny, do you need some pickups? I'm like, what? He goes, oh, yeah, Les used to keep these. Like, they'd send them from Gibson, so he just put them in as, as he wanted. So he has, like, these, uh, I don't even know what they were. I think they're, like, hand-wired custom shop PAFs from, you know, like, the 90s or whatever. But, like, new old stock from Les's personal collection of if I need to fix it. And I put those things in my guitar, and let me tell you, they sound amazing. But just the idea that a little bit of Les's leftovers are in my guitar like, I can't tell you, like, every single day that I play that guitar, I'd think of him. And because of Jimmy, he gave me one of his 1950s, like, press releases with him and Mary Ford. I put it right where I practice, so he stares at me with Mary every time I play, thanks to Jimmy. <laughs> There's no more to that. <laughs> I, found a picture. I found a picture, Mike, like. Um, oh, Je- a little guy named, we were talking oh. about Jeff Beck last, last episode. We I had a whole Jeff you. Beck thing. I just, I was at that show. That was his birthday party at the Fat Tuesdays many years ago. So why don't we, why don't we um, talk a little bit about, you know, how, so how long have you been doing now the, the show, you know, in, in, in total? Is that it? He died in 2009 and we started the show in 2000. It was 2000. That year it was the following year, 2010. And um, it was great. We hooked up, piggybacked with uh, Gibson. Once they found out that I had the stuff that Les from his collection and stuff, um, it was cool. We'd travel on the tour bus with them, and they'd have the new stock on the bus, and I'd have the old stock, and it worked hand in hand. You know, they could see how it started, the railroad track or, you know, everything. And then when they restructured, they got rid of the tour buses, and everything ended. So we started traveling around with vans and it just got too much, you know. It really did. You you have to worry at night. You bring everything into sure. the room, yeah. And it, where we could just leave it on the tour bus and it would be secure and no one would screw with it. But the, it just got to be too much. And uh, you know, getting older, you know, like I said, I'm sixty. Joe's sixty three. Uh, it just got too much. So I mean, we would like to continue, but uh, obviously, well, let's tell, let's tell this it, story because yeah. he had, he had a Jimmy Page guitar. Right, G- guitar that was sent to Jimmy Page. Jimmy didn't really think it sounded that good. So what did they do? They sent it to Papa Les, and Les made it way better. S- said to Gibson, "Here's what I did," and and of course, what did they say? Like that's way too expensive. We're not doing that. So we so we kept it. Fair. Jimmy has this guitar with these custom wound by Les 
pickups inside. Jimmy Page's artist proof Gibson. No big deal. You know, he left it somewhere and the wires were cut to the pickups because someone tried taking them out. And it's like, do I need to tell you, dude, that like Jimmy Page's guitar, if you just leave it there, like someone's going to try to take it. And that's the thing that I'm scared of. It's not a matter of I don't I love that Jimmy and Joe are so like by the book what Les told them to do. Like they give little kids strings from Les, like use strings that he used. He used to keep all of his strings after shows and he'd write like I played the Iridium this day or I played, you know, Symphony Hall and he'd give them to like kids. But it's not sustainable. And it's one of those things that like, unfortunately, there's enough crappy people out there that all it takes is somebody to do something just not cool and then he can't do this the way that he does and i just don't want to see you know the first tape machine get maimed like someone goes in and tries to cut the mona lisa that's how i feel when jimmy just leaves the stuff unattended on tables at a guitar show <laughs> which was how it was in natick because when i went to see him he's like can you go grab i remember this this is an actual quote can you go grab uh less uh number one master on the table. He had one of his original acetate masters framed. It was just like, can you go grab it? He met me 34 seconds before that. Just go grab it. I literally look at Jim Foster and I'm like, dude, I, I, should I just, should we just leave? <laughs> like, I literally, I said that to him. Like, should we just leave? Yeah. I'm like, this is insane. And that's how I feel about everything that's in his possession. Yeah. The uh, the reason that I was asking about like how long you know you've been in the show is wondering if there's been any uh, kind of standout moments or, or any you know parts you know any incidences or people that you met that that have kind of stand out in your mind you can share with us. We did a show. There's a few, but the um, we did a show in uh, Chattanooga at the Songbird Guitar Museum. It used to be there. They they since. Uh, closed up shop but they have another portion of the museum there not as elaborate as that um but we did our show there and uh joe bonamassa walks in and we had you know Les's old guitars and he's looking at him and he just looked at joe and he goes whose is this stuff joe goes it's ours and he goes wow so we had the guitar picks less made with sandpaper so of course we give stuff away so we handed it to him and we explained he made the guitar pick out of different plastic for there's one with different sound he had sandpaper because he couldn't hold it with his arthritis and he's holding it and he goes to give it back to joe and joe's like no that's for you you can keep it and i tell you what joe bonamassa started shaking he goes this is going in in joe bonamassa's museum i said where's that he goes right in my damn basement <laughs> but he was like so take about this. That, that's weird that's where mine is too it's, it's in my museum in in my basement and he was like so taken back he's holding guitars and and this and that and he was just amazed uh as as to what we do. And he's like, you guys are doing a great job. Jeff Beck, for instance, we met Jeff Beck on a tour bus. Uh, he did the uh, Les Paul tribute. And this was, we we were doing a show and we were on the tour on the Gibson bus and he came on and he was using it as a dressing room. So um, we're talking to our bus driver, Donnie Crawford, and he introduces us to Jeff Beck. And Jeff Beck goes, you guys are doing one hell of a job keeping his legacy. He goes, I, I just want to say thank you. So we bring a guitar pick out and we show him and we give it to him. And he goes, Jimmy, I got nothing for you. I'm like, it's a, I said, Jeff, it's no big deal. No, 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 no. He goes in the back of the bus, comes out with his jeans. He goes, oh, so I got to my pants. Take them. And he threw me <laughs> jeans. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want your <laughs> It was funny. I mean, but when you see, and I know, Siobhan, you, you, you're in the business, you're in the industry, you see it all the time. Um, a lot of people say that musicians are, they got attitudes, that, that, that. 
listen, when they're out of their realm, they've got a job to do and they're focused. But you take them out of that that realm of show business, they're they're decent people. They're they're fun going people. They're like you and I, they can sit and talk. But I can't imagine being a Jeff Beck, a Bon Jovi, where no matter where you go, everybody's, hey, can I get on? But to be in their peaceful time, it's so pleasant to talk to these guys. Uh, Eddie Van Halen, I mean, everyone, oh, he's crazy. He was a sweetheart. John Bon Jovi, Richie Sambora, Slash. I mean, these guys are just talking to, to us. And we're nobodies, really. I mean, we, yeah, we got less of stuff. But brought us into the family of just BSing about Les Paul. And it was so cool. I, it, it's something that I respect all the musicians. I really do. Because taken out of the, their realm of what they do and put them into a realm like this you know they're they're all just normal people just like us i I want you to get into it because we we talked when we made this episode because we're not sure what we're going to do with all this because a lot of this stuff is still unfolding but the one thing that really came out of this second episode was a very poignant tribute to les and eddie van halen because you have probably the greatest eddie van halen story I've ever heard in my entire life. And um, everyone, like, I mean, look, Alex Skolnick, who's a good friend of ours, who, again, was part of our first episode, um, he did a whole um, podcast on Eddie Van Halen, and then he did a whole podcast on Les. And when he heard that story, he, like, messages me. He's like, Benny, that's ridiculous. Like, he was, like, shaking from how awesome that was because it's one of those things where everyone's heard everything about Eddie Van Halen. But I want you to tell this story because the thing is that's great about Les and all the stories that you tell is that at the end of the day, no matter who you're talking about, Les was still cooler. So that everyone looks at you with respect because it's like, even Eddie Van Halen, he knows where he came from. And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, of course Jeff Beck is going to freak out because he, he plays guitar because of the things Les did. So can you tell us the story, the Eddie story? It's like one of those things that makes me happy. Yeah, it was 2007. Uh, during the day when he got a call from Les, either something was wrong or something real important because he slept all day. Kept the show biz hours, was up all night. About 10 in the morning, my cell phone rings, Les. I answer, I'm working as a cop. Hey, what's up? He goes, get Joe, come over right away. I'm like, oh boy. So I get off of work, I get Joe, we shoot over to the house. We walk into the house. He's got his car. I says, come on, we got to go somewhere. I'm like, where are we going? He goes, come on, I'm driving. Well, Benny loves this because um, I drove with Les once and we ended up in the cornfield at the bottom of his driveway. And so wherever we drive. Like the mailbox. Yeah, I always go. So he gets in the car. Joe's, Joe's in the back. Um, Les is up front and I got a Chevy Avalanche. So where are we going? He said, get on Route 17, head south. Now, 17 is a highway in Mawa that goes north and south down towards uh, Parkway. So we get on 17. So where are we going? I'll just keep going. Now he's sitting in the truck. You got to see the passengers looking out the window, looking around. So I said, Les, you got to tell me where we're going. And he points. He goes, we're going over there. Well, he points at the Meadowlands. Now I know Van Halen's playing there. It's a Friday night. And all my friends are going to the show. I said, Les, you just can't show up. Now being a cop and everything. I said, you can't. He goes, yeah, I know. So we pull into the Meadowlands and, uh, there's this little chubby little security guard. And I rolled my window down. He goes, you got tickets? I'm like, no. Nope. So he turns around and goes, hey, trooper. Now, there's this New Jersey State trooper who turns around about my height. Meanest guy you ever saw in your life. Got stripes up and down his arm. 
comes up to the car. Like, he looks, I got a police shield in the window. I roll the window down and said, yes, sir. He goes, you want a job? I said, yeah, I'm a cop up in Mawa. He goes, you got tickets? I'm like, no, I don't. He goes, yo, bro, I can't let you in the show. I'm like, yeah, but my buddy here, Les Paul, now I'm in tears laughing because I'm waiting for the trooper to say, get out. So he looked, I said, my buddy Les Paul wants to go say hi to his buddy, Eddie Van Halen. Trooper looks across the truck, runs around the truck. Les rolls the window down, gives it his old howdy. Trooper goes, I just bought a guitar from my daughter. It's got your name on it. Well, Les gives him an autograph, said that's pretty cool. Talks to him for a few minutes. I look in front of my truck. I got two New Jersey State Troopers with their lights on, escorting us to the back of the Meadowlands. We're parked between Van Halen's tour buses. Two guys come out in suits. They escort us. I said, where do I park this? He goes, leave it right here. Now, I'm telling you, I was five feet from the building. So we go in the back door. Uh, Alex Van Halen's drum risers there. I'm looking at Joe. I was like, this guy's got to be kidding me. He got us in here. So he goes, knocks on the door. He goes, Eddie's in here. Knocks on the door. The voice inside goes, go the F away. Les looks and he goes, he tells me to go to F away. He opens the door. There's a crash. I'm like, holy shit, Les fell. So we run around the door and there's Les standing there. There's Eddie Van Halen in khaki pants, no shirt, holding his guitar and it dropped on the ground. And he's crying. And Les is looking at him. And uh, Eddie goes, you came to see me. And Les said, many years ago, you came to surprise me. He said, I'm paying that favor back. Now, Eddie had just gotten out of rehab. And I said this in our episode. And it was kind of kind of um, shitty for me to say it that way, that he was whacked. But, but he Les- was. He was. Because well, anyone that saw, just to give you an idea on that tour, I saw him on uh, the the 30th of, um, it was Halloween. So this was November 3rd, 2007. I saw him just a few days before and he was incredible. And then three or four nights later in Worcester, he forgot verses to songs and completely train wrecked the thing because he was drinking and it was very well documented. I mean, again, he he dealt with that all of his life. So, you know, you're coming in right at that. He's double fisting. So he was, he was drinking and Les had seen that, knew he'd, just got out of rehab and he had his hair cut short. He was looking good, but he was weathered. So Les said, first thing, get rid of the bo- bottle of Gallo wine and get coffee. Because you got a show to do. You're a professional. And Les and him started talking. And uh, so we're in this little practice room in the, bo- in the basement of the Meadowlands. So I never told you this story, but I said, my friends are all out in the parking lot. So I said, Daddy, I said, you do me a favor. He's like, yeah, what? I said, my friends are all out there. If I call him, can you say hi? So sure. So I dial my friend, Tony, and I said, his name's Tony. So he takes the phone. He's like, Tony, Eddie Van Allen. No, really. I'm with Jim and Joe in, in my dressing room, and um, they wanted me to give you a shot say hello. Well, my friend Tony wouldn't talk to me for two months after that. <laughs> <laughs> he was so pissed that I did that. But um, we stayed in that room listening to riffs, every Van Halen riff you can imagine. Eddie's going up. So Eddie looks at Les. He goes, you still got it, Les? He goes, yeah, I think so. And, and Les goes, you still got it? And he goes, I got it. And he's going up and down the neck. Now, you got to look at Les. He's like this. Just for everyone's reference, when we release this documentary, and this is an example of Jimmy, again, not thinking certain things are important. He didn't tell me there's like 15 incredible photos of Eddie Van Halen and Les to document this. So this entire story, when we do in our documentary, is basically just a photo montage of Eddie and Les. And it's so expressive that you, you have to, like, everything he's saying is 
to the T what you'll see in these pictures. Continue. So he's sitting there, he looks at Eddie and Eddie's going up and down the neck and Les is there like not making any like, oh my God, you're, you're just looking at him like this, shaking his head. So Eddie goes up and I think he finished with eruption, like going up and down. And um, Eddie's like, what do you think? He goes, eh, like that. Eh. So <laughs> Eddie looks at Les and he goes, do you still got it, Les? He goes, I think so. So hands him the guitar. Les puts on the Wolfgang guitar, Eddie Van Halen Wolfgang guitar. He looks at Eddie, goes, turn that amp up. Eddie goes, whoa. So all of a sudden, Les goes, you ready? And Eddie and his guitar tech, Matt Brock at the time, all of us, Eddie goes, we're ready. So Les takes the high E, turns it up, and just bends the string. Now the sustain is just ringing, one note. And it's ringing for like 10, 15 seconds. And all of a sudden, Eddie grabs the neck of the guitar and goes, I get it, Les. (laughs) 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 And uh, we stayed in for about two hours. And then we went into his dressing room. Uh, It it was just such a night to see the two of them, you know, be together and be in their own little world. They sat on his sofa and they were just laughing. Valerie Bertinelli was there. A Wolfgang came in. Eddie introduced him to Les Paul. they were they were sitting there when Eddie's manager came in and said, Eddie, you gotta go, it's time to go. And Eddie looked right at it, he goes, I'll go when I'm ready, I'm talking to my friend. And that's when Les got up, kissed Eddie, Van Halen on the forehead and said, go get him, Eddie, you gotta go. And that was the last time they, they talked in person. And um, so what happened was, um, I always tell the story that uh, Les uh, had the little black box, the Les Pulverizer, that little box, it was a looper. Wait, you can't skip this part. You can't oh, skip my- he's about to this, tell this, this part. What part are you talking about? When you go and watch the show. Oh, when he goes- that's coming, that's coming. Okay. That's after. All right, fine. So, Continue. So, I thought you were to skip it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll jump into it. So the show's going on now. They put us up, they put us up in this uh, suite. So we're walking through the Meadowlands. They put us in an elevator. So we get out on the mezzanine and the place is packed. Well, we're two troopers are with us. So somebody yells out, who is that? And so you hear, oh, that must be Eddie's father. Then somebody yelled, that's Les Paul. Well, everybody's crowding around. And so finally they shove us into the suite. So it's Joe, myself, Les, and there was a young couple in there. So I guess it was like, I think it was a, a DeWalt's box, DeWalt Electronic, the, the construction company, that was their box. So the guy goes, who are you guys? And I go up there and say, well, this is Les Paul. And they put us in, he goes, the Les Paul? I said, yeah. So now Les goes and sits next to his girlfriend, puts his arm around her. She's like freaked, don't know who this guy is. He whispers in her ear. So now she's got his her arm around him. They're like in the front row. As soon as Eddie comes on stage, he hits the notes and they go, Les puts his hand, because we had the glass, now he put his hand to the window backwards. So his knuckles just before, and he turned around to me, he goes, too much bass, because he felt the vibration. <laughs> so um, we sat watching about five, six songs, Les, Les goes out, okay, Jimmy, let's, let's go. I'm like, all right. So he huddles us in the middle of the room, the couple, Joe, myself, and he goes, you guys watching the show, right? And they're like, yeah, it's great. And he goes, I gotta tell you a secret. I said, what's that? He goes, I created a monster. And that was the last time we left the show and went home. And uh, But that was the last time that they met. So what happened was um, Eddie was intrigued with Les's little black box. If you watch the episode of uh, 
Eddie Van Halen when he showed up at Les's show. Um, it's on YouTube um, where he surprised Les and he questioned Les about that black box. Where do I get one? And Les said, no, 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 we can't have it. So what happened over the years, Eddie would bother Les all the time. Can I buy that black box? It didn't work anymore, but it was just, just to have the black box. And Les would always say no. So when Les died, Eddie knew I had it. So he would call me like once a month. And I looked at the number. I had it memorized. And every time I saw the number on my phone, I picked the phone up and said, no, nah, Eddie, not yet. It's not for sale. And uh, he offered me a crazy number for that box. And unfortunately, he passed away um, before the box was, you know, probably I should have sold it to him. Um, but um, that was he died for that box. I should have I should have done it. You know, but I didn't. But it's still in a good home. It's still here. And I take it on the road with us all the time. I let people. I was up at um, um, Ernie's house. We brought the black box up there. Um, but we take it all over the place. It's it's cool to have, let people hold it and see a little bit of history. So it's fun. I remember the first moment that I met you. You not only handed me the guitar, but you but you put the box, you put the Les Pulverizer on it and plugged in his gooseneck microphone because anyone that knows Les Paul, Les used to control his microphone through his guitar, which is one of the telltale signs of his guitars. So I'm sitting there and within like a minute of meeting you, I'm playing his guitar, I'm playing through his amp with his actual cable, and then you put the box that Eddie Van Halen offered you absurd amounts of money right on your... And you're, and you're basically just like, have at it, Benny. And the crazy part was a whole bunch of people, they see this and they just came in and I felt like a rock star because I'm literally playing Les's personal rig with the Les Pulverizer and people are like, Who, who's this guy? And meanwhile, I'm like, I'm trying to channel the spirit of Les Paul. All that's coming out is wagon wheel. But, you know, I, <laughs> I tried. I tried. It didn't sound like him, unfortunately, even though that's the thing that people don't realize about guitar. You can play through Les Paul's amp. You can play through his guitar. You can play, uh, sing into his microphone. You can even play with his pick. And yet I still don't sound anything like him. <laughs> Alex and uh, Bumblefoot sounded like Les Paul. when they. Oh, well, they're Skolnick. incredible players. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're way better. They could that. probably play like anybody. And they did out of the blue. And he said, I never played this before in our museum up in Mawa. The two of them sat down with Les Guitar and they started playing How High the Moon. And Alex goes, I never played that before. And Bumblefoot's, I'm just going along with him. It was amazing. Well, the thing that's in incredible, and I'll say this, and I, I've said this to Bumblefoot, but I feel like that guy is a savant. Like, I feel like he's like, he's like Mozart. Like, he's telling us, oh, I wrote this song when I was five. I still could play it. And it's like this, he, he's a painter. He's a producer. Like, he's just like next level. Rick Beato, like one of my heroes who talks about music all the time, always refers to him as like the ultimate guitarist because he, he really is. Alex Skolnick, halfway through his life, has already said, all right, I did this metal thing, but I'm going to learn jazz, which is incredibly hard. So he's like a Jedi. But to watch, watch Bumblefoot pull all of these songs. He played Dire Straits. He played the Beatles. You know, they did a Carol Kay medley because it was her birthday that day. We called her and wished her happy birthday. So they did this medley. He just pulls out of these songs like Rain Man out of his head. And Alex, even though he's like an absolute Jedi, you can see it on his face, like trying so hard just to be like, what is Bumblefoot doing? And the ability for him, it's like the computer versus the uh, the chess master watching those two play Les Pauls, Les Pauls. And I got to tell you, it was such a humbling 
experience because those guys basically said hi to us. We sat them down, each gave them a separate Les Pauls, Les Paul, in through a, a Fender amp and through a Gibson amp, and they just went. And it was like our own personal show, just grab your popcorn, and they were just incredible. I mean, and, and you could see it on their faces because they were so inspired by all the stuff around them. I, I have to think that the spirit of Les definitely contributed to the awesomeness of that, which, by the way, some of it you can go see at the neuroticguitarist.com, which we haven't even mentioned yet. Yeah, well, we can get into that. I mean, it, it looks like we may have to continue without Corey. He says that he lost power and Internet. So, <laughs> so well, it's going to be Well, I'm going to be stuck with one of you. You know, yeah. I guess I, I choose you, Siobhan. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, maybe let's let's talk about, you know, what are the goals for, you know, the upcoming years, what you guys are working on together, how to reach more people, like what what's sort of in the plan for the, the coming future with with this whole project? Well, to start, um, when I met Benny, the, the ultimate goal was to continue doing our shows. I mean, I love going out and putting a smile on people's faces and actually hold this stuff, tell them a little history, but I'm not driving. <laughs> so right, ultimately, right. it's one of these to get sponsorship, to get a bus, to get us out to places we've never been before where we can, you know, tell these people, listen, this is Les Paul stuff. You get to hold it and do schools, do music schools, like go up to Boston, do all the, the big schools up there, the music schools. And- well, what I what I want to add to that is, and, and Bumblefoot was great about this, and so was Ernie Bach. You know, everyone was saying this. It's not about don't do the show. It's about go and specifically do the show for the right people. So, you know, if there's a rock and roll fantasy camp or you have Bumblefoot and Joe Perry playing, you know, that's the kind of thing. I think I think uh, Bumblefoot had actually even said he'd set you up with those guys. That's a lot different than going to the Natick Hotel with a bunch of random mass holes, um, you know, just walking in, touching all this stuff. So it's not a matter of, you know, you shouldn't take it out, but you should definitely cherry pick what you have. And I think that Jimmy's story, more than it is even a guitar show thing, is a motivational speaker thing. Because he went from, you know, growing up in this town to being the mayor of the town that Les built. You know what I mean? With his music. And then the gatekeeper to all this stuff, not even being a musician. He's the gatekeeper that Jeff Beck and, you know, Joe Bonamassa and Zach Wilde look at with reverence because Les, you know, looked at him with reverence. So that's what we're trying to capture with this. And I hope that we can share Jimmy's story so that instead of him basically being like, oh yeah, can I come to your guitar booth for $75? That people are calling him because the stuff he has, it speaks for itself. It's been a, it's been a fun ride so far and it's... Uh... To see, you know, Jimmy and, and Benny, <clears throat> the work they're doing towards this, uh, these episodes to ultimately get us to a, hopefully it's some type of documentary about um, Les Paul, how we met, and the inside story as to what kind of guy this really was. I mean, a lot of people don't know Les Paul. They think it's a guitar, da, da, da. but all the stories, I mean, he was just such a perfect gentleman. He was, a lot of people would think that he would be so out there i'm less tall and, and he was the total opposite um he was just such a good friend he was part of my family i became part of his family my daughter used to call him uncle less you know and um when she was born i'll show you this hang on a second give me a second i hope you guys are all tuned in 2020-d.com yeah great Watching visual Jimmy. content here. yeah when she, when she was born he gave her this a less paul peewee Oh my gosh! Wow, high doll from West Paul. So what happened was, when she got older, um, let's just say she practicing the guitar. I'm like, ah, eh, not really. So when she got into like sixth grade, he goes, "How's the guitar going?" And she's like, "Well, 
she really doesn't like the guitar less she likes the drums he's like the drums and i'm like yeah unfortunately less she likes the drums he goes wait a minute i'll be right back so he goes out in the back room and give me a minute give me a minute <laughs> comes out of the back room tune into the youtube 2020-d.com to watch jimmy's incredible just running around his basement i hope that never floods Oh, no, I got, I got a, a French drain pump. So what he did, he goes, here, she likes the drums, so he goes out and he hands her this. He goes, have her bang on this. This is his actual snare drum from his studio in his house. Wow. Never <laughs> oh, got my it. gosh. It's still kind of beat up, but it's, wow. got, his, it's got his notes on it. it says 1950-something Ludwig. But, yeah, I never did it. But that's the kind of guy it was. Yeah, it's an that's- old Ludwig Superphonic that I... It's like my favorite snare ever. And just another thing that I'm like, I could just put a new head on that and just ruin this friendship, but it'll sound great forever. Oh my gosh. <laughs> One of those things, like we were in his, we were in his basement and uh, cause I had to clean the basement. So he gave me his workbench. Now I had his actual workbench from his basement. It took us three hours to disassemble in the basement. Um, screws, it was crazy. He built it and we gave it to Gibson to put in there. I wanted to put it, in the beginning of their show or their work area. So every day a worker went in, they touched the workbench and go to work. Like they do Notre Dame, they hit the thing up top. And um, that ended up in, I guess, Henry's possession. And it, when they got the new owners, it wasn't in Gibson, so it disappeared. And unfortunately that happens. There's a couple items that we had given away that ended up, um, Les had give me a, a set of golf clubs and I said, this is the stuff that hurts my soul's guy, this guy. <laughs> so you understand why I'm like, Jimmy, please just lock all this stuff up and don't tell anyone oh, uh, where it is. We're in his Get garage. Get ready to cry. We're in his garage one day and we're cleaning up, throwing stuff away. He comes, I come across this old leather guitar, or, um, golf bag. It's got these wooden shafts on it. And I'm like, you play golf? He goes, nah. He goes, whenever I wanted to talk with Bing, the only way we could talk would be on a golf course. So Bing gave me the clubs and, I, he goes, so you can throw them away. I'm like, Les, these are Bing Crosby's golf clubs. You can't throw them away. Now, he, so Les tells me the story. He goes, I didn't really like golf. He goes, so when we went on the golf course, I didn't have any golf balls. So I went into the pro shop and they were like 25 cents a piece. He goes, there was a field out there with hundreds of them, a driving range. So he went, took all the driving range balls and put them in a bag. And that's what he played with. So I said, unless you can't throw it away. And I knew what he was doing. He wanted me to take. So I took it, put it in my car, sat in my basement forever. When he dies, my wife's like, what are you doing with these things? So I looked online and I found a Bing Crosby golf course in Santa Rancho, California. So I called him. I said, bless you. Thank you. So I saw the, the golf course. So I called the golf course. I said, listen, I'd like to do something. I've got these golf clubs that were given to Les by Bing, your golf course. I wonder if you want to put them on display for a while in your in your showroom. The guy I speak to, his name was Scott Irwin. Yeah, I think it was Scott Irwin. Oh, we'd be honored. So he sent me letters. We were corresponding back and forth. I send the golf clubs out there. Anytime you want to come out to play, I said, So about six months later, I called the golf course and I asked to speak to Scott Irwin. Oh, he's no longer here. So I said, well, I'm the guy who gave you the golf clubs, the Les Pauls. The lady on the phone said, what clubs? Got it. Yeah. So, and you live and learn. Unfortunately, you know, if the guy has to take the golf clubs, so be it. But uh, you live and learn. 
And like Benny mentioned with the um, Jimmy Page guitar, we had that in a museum. And the only way to get to the Jimmy Page guitar that was hanging up next to Carlos Santana's John Bon Jovi's uh, was that you were buzzed into this room. So only but people with access to this museum could get in there. So we dropped it off. We did a tour. We dropped it off at their showroom and went back three months later to pick the guitar up to take it on another show. And I go on the tour bus and I plug it in. It didn't work. I'm like, what the hell? Now, this is Jimmy Page's guitar. So I'm like, what the hell? So I send it back on the bus to Gibson. Our buddy, Dusty Loomis, who was a luthier in restoration, called me the day later. He goes, where was this guitar? And I'll tell you exactly. It was in the Gibson showroom in New York City. I said, why? He goes, because somebody tried to cut the pickups that Les had made to get out of the guitar. I said, what? He goes, Jimmy, these pickups are million-dollar pickups because Les Paul made them. His notes were on. And somebody inside tried to steal. I think it's safer for us to let people play this stuff because if it's hidden somewhere, you know, they're going to try and take a knob. Trust me, I've had guitars where knobs were taken. They tried to take the pick guards off, but it's safer when we let little kids play it, anybody play it in front of us. Mm-hmm. And one lady, we let play a guitar and she goes, how much is that guitar worth? I said, let him finish. The kid was like nine. He's going up and down. Da, da, da. And it was a custom. I said, that's about half a million. She goes, my son breaks concrete. <laughs> I looked at her. I said, watch him play this guitar. And, he's, and when he was done, he handled it gently, put it back. I said, he's not going to hurt oh, wow. and it. And we've learned that it's safer to do what we do, even though Benny disagrees. But- well, no, there, there's something to be said for what you said, because normally I'd be if, if you guys were assholes, I'd be scheming like Jim. We could totally take his stuff, and if he's not looking or whatever. But you're like Benny here. Just go take Les's personal uh, autobiography manuscript and bring it over to Joe. And it's like a test of uh, of like whether you're valiant and you have like you know all of those. I, I don't know the word because I don't have it. Um, you know, and then you're true. I can't. I said to him, I can't be a scumbag around you because you've given me so much opportunity that like literally it, it's so transparent that I'd be a dick that I just have to be nice. <laughs> so like every time I go there, he'll be like, Benny, do you want something? Because he knows I'm like a little kid in Christmas morning. And just so you know, I give most of the stuff that Jimmy gives me away. Like Paul Lorenzo for his birthday. One of the things I gave him, I gave him a DI box that Jimmy had given me. And um, he had uh, he has tons of his old promo pictures, but they're like one like one offs or whatever. And I gave him a promo picture of, of Les playing a little mini guitar. And as much as I wanted to keep it, Paul immediately looked at me and he was just like, this is from Les's house. Like, yeah, it's his personal picture of himself. I can have this. Yes. Really? Yes. We get it. What, 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 do you want? What, what do you what do you want? What do you want for this? Yeah. What, what, what do you want? And the look on his face is exactly what Jimmy says all the time is it, it was just like one of those things where we made somebody's day. And it's like, I appreciate that Jimmy does that because every string he's given me, I've given to somebody else and they lose their mind every time because it's less Paul. And it never gets old. And you guys ask, you know, what is the next step? And, and I'm so happy to say that one of the reasons we I started playing a Les Paul was Joe Perry. And we've had Steve Wood just recently on the show who manages him with our friend Paul Geary. Well, what we're trying to do, and clearly we know Joe has reference for, for Les, is get Joe to be a part of this documentary and to put some of these things and to have Jimmy tell his stories to Joe Perry. Because one of the things we've realized that uh, in, in filming this is that 
the look of excitement on the people's faces that, that live music, that are as passionate about it as myself, you, you know, you guys, you know, Bumblefoot is way better than just like any Joe Schmo, like cutting to Bumblefoot as he's telling the story is so much better. So like, and you see a guy like Joe Perry or a guy like Billy Gibbons, you know, these guys are a little bit jaded. They have had everything offered to them, every single thing. But when you mention Les Paul, I guarantee you, no matter what, these guys are going to revert back to when they were kids learning how to play guitar. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to capture that excitement, which is behind everything Jimmy does. Hopefully with Joe Perry this month. Yeah, that's amazing. No, it's a, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And um, I mean, one of the things that fascinated me when I saw the show, when you came to uh, Ernie Bach's house, was all of the papers and the manuscripts. And I'm wondering, like, what, you know, some of them obviously I'm sure were organized, but it seems like a lot of them are just kind of chaos all over the place. Things written on the back of printed sheets of receipts. I, is there any plan to sort of catalog all of that or interpret it? I'm, I mean, I'm fascinated by some of the things, even in the pages you gave me that had little drawings that I don't even understand. Obviously some schematic for something and Perfect notes example. for a memoir. Gave you notes that you didn't even care about that probably no, I do care break about the it. Rosetta Stone. <laughs> And that you're, but that's you're why like, it's a stick I'm, I'm terrified of losing this pa- piece of paper because I'm like, this could be Don't. the key to something. I, I will not. <laughs> I've, I've got more. <laughs> it's um, with all the paperwork, it was kind of funny because it was in a big box and uh, he had everything. He was very organized and um, he had all his contracts in boxes, but everything he had was very, very organized. So when he threw this file cabinet away, he knew I was going to take it, you know, throw it away. And it ended up in my truck. And um, I took all the paper, got rid of the file cabinet, took all of it and just put it in a tote. And then I realized I looked at a couple of the documents and I'm like, well, look, he's got a drawing of a pickup. He's got a drawing of an amplifier. You know, someday somewhere down the road, this might be valuable to someone or a museum to have. And it wasn't re- until I met Benny where I went back and looked at some of these, his um, manuscripts for his book. I mean, mm-hmm. I used to just hand them out. And then I met a guy who was the curator of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, in Mississippi. And they had white gloves on. And that's when I met Ben. And Benny's like, Jimmy, your hand oil can ruin these things. You can't touch these. These got to go in a museum. Oh, this is are. a perfect example. So yeah. people, these are schematics from a 1955 Les Paul. It says 225-1955, and they're like absolutely perfectly preserved. There's one that's a bass guitar, but these are just from some of the pages of stuff that uh, has gone through my hands, and I could tell you that some of the notes I have um, in my possession that I've been trying to demystify, I sent them to John, Gar- our friend John Garabedian. He goes, Betty, this looks like uh, certain frequencies uh, and the responses to certain frequencies. So if I had to, if I had to surmise what this was, uh, it's it's a guy, uh, you know, uh, testing a microphone with uh, and seeing how how it reacts. And but and I brought it down to Steve Morrill, my um, my luthier, and he's like, Benny, this guy clearly had a technical mind, and he was trying to put like a technical number on like a sound. He. A hundred pages of just numbers of him basically putting certain electrical responses and frequencies off microphones to basically, you could see, like, this is how his manifesto to how he figured out sound. And then on the next page, it's like, and here's a pickup. It's, 
and it, it's thousands, it, thousands yeah. of pages. It, it's I don't think I can ever catalog it in chronological order. There's just so many. Sure. I mean, I tried to keep them together as I found them in the in the file, but um, there's just so many of them. And you read some of them, and some of them are like so interesting. It's hard to understand some of his writing at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, to somebody, it's uh, trust me. Everything he gave me, I treasure like it's a lost treasure. But to some people, like the music people, like yourself, fun, um, like Joe Joe Perry, Billy Gibbons, Eddie Van, it's like the like the Bible to them. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's like yeah, let's gave me this stuff, and not that I downplay it, but. I mean, yeah, I know it's it's priceless, I guess, in a way. But to the people in the industry, all four of you, or three of you, it's it, it's a different level than the way I look at it. And to put it in the people's hands that appreciate it is part of the deal I made. You know, let the people see, touch, and play it, and sometimes they walk away with it. So somebody well, has to, somebody oh. has to be one day at a show. So, Jimmy, what about? Um, when you do your shows, if there's no more stuff to give away, I said, show over. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like there's a massive amount of stuff that still remains. So I, I, it would be hard to believe that it would disappear in any of our lifetimes. Well, that's part of that's part of the whole, like my passion for this documentary, because, you know, and, and Jim Foster has said this multiple times, like this is not just a documentary. This could be literally a full time for the foreseeable future thing, because every single thing in Jimmy's basement in his possession is incredible like I'll tell you like things I've randomly happened upon just in his basement oh so one of the things is you know an SG guitar stands for solid guitar and a lot of people that are guitar nerds know that between like 1961 and 1963 the Les Paul Custom was basically the SG and then uh, there's all these rumors as to why it reverted back to being just the original Les Paul, and then the SG became the SG and not the Les Paul Custom. And in 1963, Les got divorced from from Mary, um, and so a lot of people said he didn't like it because it looked like, you know, the devil horns, or he just didn't like the way it played, like all these different things. We find this piece of paper, and in Les's own handwriting, he explains why he left Gibson. He basically got fired, mutual leaving. Mary Ford wanted to be a mom and enjoy life. And he could not put the guitar down. Like he writes it all out. This is just a random page amongst thousands of pages, but it demystifies the story of one of the most incredible Gibson guitars in history. And then just like two pages later, he's talking about the mob in Chicago. And I'm like, (laughs) dude, like any one of these things could be again a surprise for an entire week and you could bring down almost any expert and they're going to be like holy shit like I, I remember going on an archaeological dig in Israel when I was a kid and we found so much shit that I thought they must have buried this stuff like that's how I felt that's how I feel every time I go to Jimmy's house I'm like oh we're going to find something new now like just and I just sit there and wait for Jimmy to show me something I don't know because there's so much of it. And, and Les was so meticulous with his notes. With He was definitely a pack rat. He kept everything. I mean, you have every phonograph, like, uh, is it the stylus? Yeah. And he dates how long the stylus lasted. And he's got them all. Like, that's just one example of, like, ridiculousness. Yeah. It's fun to share. <laughs> Well, we're, uh, you know, coming to the end of hour number two. I mean, Jim, we want to really thank you for your time and sharing everything with us. And I, 
we'll we'll definitely keep everyone up to date on the the work that you and Ben are doing uh, with the the documentary and everything, and we'll have links to you know the the Facebook and Instagram. The NeuroticGuitarist.com, Corey. They can go see episode one, which is probably the only thing that's going to see the light of day until we figure out some of this stuff because Jimmy has so many surprises. Even on this show, I've learned <laughs> new things about the Eddie Van Halen story, and I, I, I all I could think is like, why didn't you tell me that? Like, we've had cameras at your house, man. Like, why don't you tell me these things? Well, because there'll be and something new every time. Like he said, it will yes. trigger something different every time he tells the story. And that's part Forever of the magic, Ben. This. Now, if anybody's watching and isn't, just don't show up at my house. Call me if you want to come see the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we won't hard. disclose your address. <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard to find. But give me a heads up before you show up. <laughs> I, want to thank, I want to thank all three of us. It's been a pleasure. Obviously, you know, I could talk less ball all day. And, no, uh, this has been amazing. I mean, it's it's really a pleasure for us, and you're such a kind person. I, I'm so glad I got to meet you in person, and you know, I'm really excited for the things that you guys are going to do together. And it's it's just an amazing thing what you're doing. Super. Thank you for taking the time out from tour. And of course, uh, it's my pleasure really to be here. Corey, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to hang out yeah. with the friends of Benny's and you. You know that. Yeah, I look forward to meeting in person. Yeah, some, definitely. Soon. Well, you can come over anytime. Just give me a hey yo. Right. Only only if we have a couple beers with that we open oh. with uh, Les's bottle opener there. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> or he donates it and then yeah. it disappears. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe. Do all those fun things. And we will see you next time. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 143, featuring Keith Wallen of Breaking Benjamin. Check it out. It's one thing to kind of, you know, try some songs out and stuff in, in front of some friends and, you know, small kind of crowd. But, you know, some of the places we played were pretty big and there was a lot of people there. So it, I'm just I found myself just standing there looking at a sea of people with no one else on stage but me. And uh, I was like, please, God, somebody give me some whiskey to numb the pain. <laughs> like fast. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11.